But uh, welcome to St. Anselm Anglican Church on behalf of the congregation and the vestry. Uh, I'm Father Sean, the rector, and thank, welcome to those of you that are joining us online. Um, at this point, I'd like to turn things over to our senior warden, Mrs. Carol Melizer, for the introduction. Good evening. I would like to uh, reintroduce our speaker and our rector tonight as we have some new people here personally and hopefully we have many more people watching this on Facebook. Uh, on behalf of the rector and vestry, I welcome you to the 2022 St. Anselm series. We hope this will become an annual series. Tonight I have the pleasure of introducing our rector and our lecturer. Reverend Sean S. Templeton is the founding vicar of Lakewood Anglican Mission and recently instituted rector of St. Anselm Anglican Church. He has served in Lakewood as a clergyman for 10 years. Prior to this, he served as assistant rector at Christ Church West Shore and St. Barnabas Anglican Church, as well as several mission congregations in Indiana. He was ordained to the priesthood in 2008 after completing his Master in Divinity from Ashland Theological Seminary. He had begun his formation at Trinity Episcopal School for Ministry. Father Sean holds a bachelor's degree from Ashland University where he majored in history, political science, and philosophy. From 2001 to 2005, he was a scholar at the Ashbrook Center for Public Affairs. In 2005, he received the Howard O. Rowe Award for the top thesis in the university for his work on the Anglican theologian Richard Hooker. While at Ashland, he studied under Professor Louis Mancha. Father Sean lives in West Park with his wife Leah and two children. And tonight, we will be hearing from Dr. Louis A. Mancha, Jr. He is an associate professor and current chair of the philosophy department at Ashland University. He specializes in medieval and early modern philosophy and philosophy of religion. He received his BA from Rice University and his MA and PhD from Purdue. Dr. Mancha has delivered papers at several national and state conferences, including meetings of the American Catholic Philosophical Association, the Society of Christian Philosophers, the American Maritain Society, the Midwest Conference in Medieval Philosophy, and the Ohio Philosophical Association. Since the fall of 2003, he has taught a wide variety of different courses, ranging from logic to ethics, to specific seminars on Aristotle, St. Anselm, and St. Thomas Aquinas. Dr. Mancha also serves at his parish as an usher, lector, and catechist for high school and adult sacramental preparation. He lives in Ashland, Ohio, with his wife and four children. So I'd like to ask Dr. Mancha come to the podium. All right, well, I've already uh, mentioned I'm not quite sure how the blocking is going to go on this because I'm a wanderer. You know, you may have noticed last time, right? I, I just can't seem to be still. So maybe we'll use the board. Maybe we won't. We'll see how that goes. Uh, did, did everyone get a copy of the handout um, that I brought along? Hopefully you have it. It'll give you an opportunity just to kind of see and follow along. Even if you didn't read the text, uh, hopefully we'll be able to um, have an opportunity to discuss some of these things. So 
Last week, we toyed with a few basic themes uh, in the philosophy of St. Anselm. And today, what I want to do is just hone in on two of the most important ones that are really going to help us appreciate Anselm's contributions to philosophy as well as theology. And these are the concepts of truth and language. And so I just want to speak broadly about this for a moment, and then we'll kind of go specifically into the text. So when you think carefully, right, just our common sense understanding of things, most of us recognize that the category of truth, what is versus what is not, is much bigger or wider than language. Presumably, we think that there are many things that are true, which language itself might not be able to explain, might not be able to establish at all. Further, unlike truth, language we know can get it wrong. It has the ability to convey falsehood. But in thinking about this, we ought to wonder how it can even do that. I mean, lies and falsehoods are curious things I want us to recognize. It's because they appear to be true. So language has to have some kind of connection with being and truth. Otherwise, it would just be a series of noises with no connection to reality at all, and we wouldn't even be able to deceive ourselves using it. So... What is the connection? And this is what Anselm is struggling to try and sort of put together throughout many of his writings, but in particular this one on truth. Most of us think we recognize the differences among the following concepts. So maybe I will come over to the board here and we'll use the purple. Uh, right. So we think we understand um, what things are. like an apple. And then we recognize that there is this other thing, a thought, a concept we'll talk about. You know that your idea of an apple isn't an apple. I mean, you can't feed yourself with the idea, correct? We understand the difference. And then there is this other thing, The word, the word apple, for example, in English, A-P-P-L-E. You know that that is, is nothing like an actual apple at all. I mean, if we're to be scientists about this for a moment, how is it that the word apple, that noise, right now it's an acoustical disturbance, yes, apple. Quantify over that, do what the physicists and chemists do. You know that that has nothing to do with the things that grow on trees. Think carefully about your idea of an apple. How is your idea of an apple like that word? That's really interesting. You should worry a little bit about that. I mean, how is it the case that the noise, again, which is literally nothing like the thing, connected with the thing? Is it all just arbitrary? Some people think so. And Anselm's answer is, well, yes and no. Right? We need something to bridge the gap between words and things. And that's this issue of the concept. And the question is, what kind of work does it do for us? And uh, according to Anselm, this concept, this idea, allows us to be able to grasp the nature of being itself. And so he has this very strong metaphysical view about what ideas do. 
So Anselm believes that humans, unfortunately, do not have the ability to ascertain things in themselves, to know truly what they are in and of themselves. Only God can do this, according to Anselm. The closest that human beings come to ascertaining things, whether it be apples, or the cross, or you know, the ambo, is we perceive some phenomena through our senses, we take in some raw sensory data, and then we attempt to think about it through reason. We attempt to interpret that bit of information from the senses of what we're experiencing. And for Anselm, this amounts to trying to think about the universal essence of the thing. So we, we get the information from our senses, and what comes into our mind right, is this universal essence. At least we try to get that. But ours is imprecise, right? It, it gets at it, roughly speaking, but it doesn't get at it fully and completely. In thinking the universal essence of a thing, the mind utters what Anselm calls the natural word of the thing. And this is very important. So you have words here, these linguistic items. These are noises. They're shapes on the board. Words are physical things. We can count them. But then there's this other thing that Anselm talks about. What he calls the natural word. If you understand what an apple is, to stick with that example, or a piano, you have in your mind what he calls the natural word of that object. These natural words, he tells us, are the same among all people. He says, quote, now all other words were invented on account of these natural words. Therefore, where there are natural words, no other word is necessary to know a thing. And where natural words are impossible, no other word will serve to make a thing known. And so again, we want to be able to distinguish between these linguistic items, right? shapes on the board, sounds, and then this other thing that we're trying to get at when we try to understand what a thing is, the natural word. So Anselm is using this guise of language to try to make his point. But he's literally, of course, at this point, not talking about shapes and sounds. The natural words are actually like the things of which they are words. So when we talk about the natural word of an object and a thing, there is a kind of likeness that obtains between these. The referent, the referent of a word here for Anselm, the referent of the word would actually be the thing. So when I say the word piano, the referent of the word piano the, uh, um, is the object that the word is attempting to try to hook up with. Yeah. But then there's another thing altogether, right? There's the fact that you understand what pianos are, and you know that that's only a single instance of one. I mean, here's the curious thing, right? You understand stuff. Right? You understand stuff, but you, you don't just understand particulars. 
you understand concepts such that you can apply them to many different things. So when you say you know what an apple is, you can go to the grocery store and you don't walk into the produce section and go, oh, what are those? Right? Because even though you've never seen those apples, you have a condition, a set of characteristics that allows you to be able to recognize what they are. And you know that you can know what an apple is and they don't have to be red. And they don't have to be green. And they don't have to be yellow. Yes? It's very interesting, this set of conditions you have. Anselm says, I mean, that means you understand what it is. It's called the natural word. You have, he thinks, in your mind, access to or a likeness of the nature of being itself. And again, you take this for granted. Because if you tried to, to fetter this out in any other way, you'd realize why some people think that language is just a bunch of noises that don't really mean anything. Because the language... The noises are absolutely nothing like the things. And even your ideas are absolutely nothing like the things. Your idea of a pizza isn't a pizza. Sorry to say. Yeah. It'd be nice if it were, yes? But that would be really weird, right? If you were to say the word pizza, and you'd come out and you'd be like, oh, I can eat it, and you'd take it right back in. That thing that you're thinking of, that pizza, right? You like pizza? Pizza's okay? Yes? Notice, you can actually focus so carefully on it, right? Some of the specific characteristics of it. You can smell it, yes? You can taste it, right? Your body will react. You might salivate, yes? You start to get hungry. But you can't eat that thing. That thing that you're thinking of has none of what we call the formal actual features that pizzas have. There's no cheese in there. There's no dough. That thing that you're thinking of has no shape. It has no color. It's not like when you close your eyes, you know, a light pops on and, you know, you, you have colors in it. There's no color. That thing that you're thinking of has none of the actual formal features that the pizza itself has. So what is it that allows you to be able to hook it up? Not only with the thought and the thing that you have, but the word that we use. This is a really difficult puzzle that the ancients and the medievals and even the early moderns fuss with just this ordinary relationship between noises and things. So again, these natural words that he says that we somehow are able to grasp, they're like the things of which they're words. Again, they're like concepts, and concepts are these sets of defining characteristics, as I've mentioned to you before. To utter the natural word of a thing is to beget a likeness of the thing itself in your mind. Now, to do this is not merely to fabricate a picture in your mind. It involves what he calls an intuitive aspect. And we need to understand, philosophically speaking, when we talk about philosophical intuition, it's not a guess, right? So that's normally how we use the word intuition, right? We use it sort of as a guess, right? I've got an intuition. I'm sort of... Actually, for Anselm, the, the power of intuition is the power of reason simply to be able to grasp the truth of something. And that's why you're able to sort of grasp the truth of, you know, ordinary mathematical concepts, right? Like two and two is four. You just grasp it. You're able to recognize other sorts of things, right? And Descartes will take advantage of this later on, right? You just can recognize the fact that you're aware of your own thinking. So you can affirm your own existence just by being aware of it, right? That's what we call philosophical intuition, right? It's an affirmation of a truth, right? It's not a proof by any means. It's just simple grasping of something that is readily available to you. 
So in other words, to utter the natural word of a thing, again, is to have the concept of something in your mind that's real. This is what Anselm means when he says, and he will say it later when he's dealing with the ontological argument, something exists in the understanding. When you say that you understand something properly and truly, you have an utterance of the natural word in your mind. For Anselm, it's not possible for something to exist in the understanding without it also then having a corresponding existence in reality. Precisely because the nature of our understanding, according to Anselm, is so intertwined with reality. Furthermore, Anselm seems to be committed to thinking that there can be no what we call natural words as opposed to conventional words, namely noises that we make. For things that do not exist, there are no natural words for things that do not exist. In the case of fictional objects, for example, like leprechauns, happy St. Patrick's Day. We do not have a natural word for them, according to Anselm. What we have with the noise, leprechaun, what it does is it draws to mind an amalgamation, right? A series of individual features and conditions that our mind has constructed from other actual things. That word, leprechaun, as Anselm will explain in De Veritate and in a couple of other places, it has no actual referent. It has no actual signification. That's why you know there aren't any. Maybe. Yes? So the theory of natural words that Anselm offers to us, which he actually lays out a bit more carefully in the Monologion, this is necessary to clarify the differences and similarities between what it means for us to have an idea of something, for something to exist in the understanding, and then for it to exist in reality. There is a very tight connection for him concerning these things. Anselm's uh, analysis of the natural word is actually similar to St. Augustine's theory of the intellectual vision in God. For Augustine, the mind ascertains the intelligible ideas in the mind of God. So to understand the truth for someone like Augustine requires us to be illuminated by what he calls the teacher within. And the teacher within is Christ, right? And Christ actually confirms the affirmations of reason itself. When you apply reason properly to analyze some data, you see the truth. Just like being in a dark closet, you can feel around and get some information, yes? Like if you're in a big closet, you can feel around and get some data, but all of that is just opinion. What do you need if you want to be able to know what's in the closet? You need a light. And in order to be able to see, you not only need to be able to have light, but, go ahead. Yeah, you need functioning eyes. What else? Two more things. Huh? Say again? Well, true, right, we'll just sort of assume that one there, yeah. So look, this is all Plato, by the way, right? To be able to see something, you take this for granted, right? To be able to see something, four things need to happen. One, you need to have eyes, right? If you don't have eyes, it doesn't matter if there are things there to be seen, right? You can't say that you see them, literally. There have to be things to be seen, right? If there's nothing to be seen, you can't say, I see anything. Three, you need light. Now, most of us take that for granted, right? But here's the funny thing about light. Notice light is what we call... Um, a third-party mediator. The light's not you, is it? And the light's not the thing that you're trying to see. 
The light is the mediator between the seer and the seen. It facilitates that relationship between the seer and the seen. This is how God functions for Augustine. Right? To illuminate. But there's got to be a fourth thing. There can be someone with good eyes. There can be things to be seen. There can be light. But if you're not looking in the right direction, if you're not focusing your attention on the thing that you want to understand, no seeing is going to happen. Right? Right now, from where you guys are at, the light's on. You have good eyes. There are things to be seen. But you can't see, you know, what's in the wardrobe up there until you turn your direction that way. Yeah? So you can't say you see what's up there. And so this third-party mediator functions uh, to be able to bridge the gap between thought and thing, and that's how Anselm wants us to understand the, the activity of the natural word. We have this ability to be able to obtain them to bridge that gap between the things that we see and the words that we use and hope that somehow there's going to be a hookup. This understanding of words and truth will become extremely important, again, when trying to make sense of the ontological argument, which we'll talk about next week. And ultimately, for those of you who did the reading in the monologion, it grounds his analysis of the Trinity, specifically the relationship between the Father and the Son, insofar as the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is considered to be God utters himself, right, for all eternity, according to Anselm. The word of God. And that utterance of God's is natural. And unlike ours, right, we've got pretty good ideas of things like pizzas and, you know, physical, but even then, they're incomplete. We can still continue to learn. That's why most of you can go out into the world and find trees, but you might not be good at being able to distinguish different kinds of trees, Right, like oak and pine, etc. Right, but you can identify trees. But God's utterance of himself is so perfect in his understanding that it takes on the divine substance. It's a complete and full reflection of it. It is, as Anselm said in the text, consubstantial. So we want to keep this in mind because he's going to have some of this in the background when he starts talking about de veritate, right, and truth here in the text. Are there any questions before we move on? I know that was heavy. Maybe we should, like, take a rest or something. Yeah, yes, sir. Um, yes, we learn them. Yeah, we learn them. We come to have access to them. But not in the way that you ordinarily would, uh, not, not in sort of an Aristotelian way by, by just kind of... Um, uh, acquiring information, yes, and then having them sort of be constructed from our own rational thinking. It's a, um, it's like I said, it's close to the theory of divine illumination, where the perceptions that we look at, so when you think about an object, you look at the piano, for example, the perceptions that we receive give us a specific data set, and that specific data set itself isn't what you would call uh, complete, right, because there are people who can look at it and not know what it is, yeah. And so for him, presumably, uh, there's something mysterious about it. There's something mysterious about us being able to use reason to ascertain what a thing is and come to have that full understanding. 
But once you obtain it, guess what you can do with it? You can use it to sort of identify all sorts of things. And then, of course, here's what reason can do, right? Reason can then manipulate those ideas. Right, so you can think of the, the piano as white now. Right, you all can do it pretty easily. You can think of the piano, you can add an extra leg onto it, right? You can th think of the piano as taller. You can begin to manipulate, right, your, what it calls representational thought of that particular thing. Yeah, but he's a bit mysterious about, like, how this happens. The how is difficult, yeah. 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 Um. Hold on to that for a second. Yeah, because he seems to favor the concept of innate ideas, right? Particularly as a Platonist Augustinian, he seems to favor that particular understanding. So we may come sort of ready-made with certain uh, what we'll call sort of broad concepts. For example, like likeness and unlikeness. I mean, think about what you do when you take in data, yes? I mean, consider, how do you know that all of these pews are alike in a certain way? Here's what you don't do. You don't sort of some, somehow extract likeness from them, right? Likeness is a judgment you make about them, yeah? So in order to be able to say they're, 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 they're like each other because they maybe have the same color, right? Or they're like each other and maybe they're roughly the same length, you need those kinds of concepts on board already in order to be able to assess the data. Because otherwise, how would you do it? That sounds weird, doesn't it? It sounds weird. Here, let me give you a, a more modern analogy, okay? Let me give you a more modern analogy. Like, we don't normally think like this, but how many of you uh, have used a computer? Most of you, or, or maybe you have a computer in your pocket, yes? You've got a phone? Now, think carefully about this, yes? How many of you have built your own computer? Yeah? So, do you just put all the components together and then turn it on and you're ready to go? No, why not? Yeah, what do you mean the system? You need an operating system. But is that enough? No, what do you need? Yeah, you need programs, right? So on your phone, you have apps on your phone, yes? So consider, none of us come raw under this picture. If you came raw, I mean, what good would your computer be if it just sort of came without any operating system or without any programs on it? Right, you could wave at the camera, you could bang on the keyboard, yes, you can plug things into it, nothing would happen. Nothing at all. And so in order for your computer to minimally be functional, for your phone minimally to be of use, it's got to have some preloaded software. Sure, yeah, those natural types of reactions, you know, some of that, yeah, uh, reflexes. Well, no, I mean, no, actually, he's talking about something much more complicated than that, right? So those are kind of physiological responses, yeah. Uh, he's talking about, um, like I said, your ability to be able to compare and contrast information. Your ability to be able to, to take in data from your senses and do something with it, make judgments about it. You, you need the software. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the concept of goodness. How many of you know what's good? <laughs> a 
that's a, that's a simple four-letter word, right? <laughs> it's a simple one. You're like, oh, don't ask me about that. Don't ask me about goodness. Right? I don't know what that is. Of course you do. Of course you do. You know exactly what you're looking for. Of course there are some things that you think are good that you're wrong about, yes? But under no circumstances whatsoever, when you seek things, do you ever seek anything other than what you perceive to be good? Even people who do terrible, horrible, vicious things, they want something out of the deal. Do you understand? They want some benefit. Right? And this, this has significant implications when we talk about morality then and what people are doing. Right? I'm sorry. Um, completely new. Um, there are very few philosophers who actually think that. Completely new. Right? So, so again, here's, here's a way of thinking about it. Um, yeah, is, is it possible, tell me if I got it right, is it possible for us to imagine or think of something that is completely new? Right? With the imagination. And again, most philosophers are going to say no. And here's why. Right? Consider how the imagination functions. Uh, how many of you have played with Legos before? Right, I've got analogies for you, okay? We've all played with Legos before. Did you know that the plural of Legos is actually Lego? Did you know this? It just doesn't sound right. Anyway, um, so you go to the store and you buy the box of Legos, right? And what are we going to buy? A pirate ship? Okay, we'll buy a pirate ship. Okay, fine, we'll buy a pirate ship. But when you go to the store, what do you see on the shelf? Do you see the pirate ship? What do you see? You see a box, yes? And you buy it and you bring it home, and what's inside the box? What's in the box? Yes? <laughs> Some of you got that. Okay, what's in the box? Huh? The Lego. The Lego. <laughs> huh? All the pieces, Yes? all the raw data of the senses. But you're lucky, because what else is in the box? <laughs> the instructions, the blueprint, the concept. Yeah? The concept, how to put those pieces together to make something coherent. And so you put them together, you take all the raw data and you put them together in accordance with the blueprint that you just happen to have. And you play with your, you know, pirate ship and you know, if you're like me, you get some M80s and you stick them in there, you blow the thing up, it's fun, it's great, right? Like, we used to play with fire all the time, me and my brothers. Right, we have scars to prove it. <laughs> and so, uh, you do this for a while, and then it's time to put these things away. Right, it's time to put these things away. So, uh, some people, I mean, maybe, maybe you're one of these people, maybe you know someone who's like this, they take all the pieces apart and they put them into little baggies and they put them back inside the box, Yes, it all stays together. But that's not how many people do it. How do some other people do it? What do you think? You throw it all in the box, or you do what my kids do. We had like a, a Tupperware or like a, you know, Sterlite box. And they just threw all the pieces in there. With the Harry Potter Legos and the superhero Legos. I mean, they're all, and then my kids would be like, ah! And then they mix them all up. And I'm like, you're never going to find the pieces to your you know, to your ship again, and like, we don't care, right? Uh, yeah. But now think of what you can do. You've got the blueprint, yes? 
You could dig through there. The brain's a little faster, yes? You could dig through there and make the ship again, right? But what else could you do? You could make something new, yes? You could make something new. But you can only work with what's in the box. That's how the imagination works. You can only work with what's in the box. Oh, you can put together things that are terrible and horrible. Right? A few of you have probably seen the Lego movie, yes? I mean, my son was like that. He'd get the glue out and the pliers, and he, just, he would make something terrible. Yes? He was like, you, you're not supposed to do this. Right? We do that in our minds, yes? We create monsters, terrible things. But sometimes we, of course, create, we put the pieces together, and we make something pretty interesting. And we ask ourselves, could reality be like this? Yeah? But you can only use what's in the box. This is why you need to read more. This is why you need to get out <laughs> and see and experience things because you've got to fill your box with stuff to use, to manipulate, because you can only work with what's in the box. Now, if you, now if you think, so, so that's, that's really the picture that's, that's usually given, whether you're a Platonist or an Aristotelian. If you think that we can somehow make something new then without using pieces in the box, right? You've got to explain something more to me. Does that make sense? Right, sort of like, what are you, where are you getting that information from? Right? So every, for any idea that we have, we've gotten the pieces of it from somewhere. For anything fictitious, whether it be a leprechaun or a unicorn, right, Harry Potter, whatever, we, we've gotten the pieces from other things in our experiences, in our understanding. That's why we understand it, by the way. Yeah? Because we have the natural words of all of those things, and we're able to break apart the various conditions of those concepts, just like you can tear a blueprint when you're making a house. It's like, oh, that's really nice, you know, but I want the bathroom here, you know, and I want you to put this upstairs, and you can just kind of, you can ask whether or not it can be made. Does that make sense? The word nothing is a very curious concept. I don't want to talk about the word nothing yet. We'll talk about the word nothing next week. How about that? Yeah, <laughs> we'll talk about the word nothing next week because he brings it up. In De Causa Diaboli, because he says, nothing is hard, but you think you understand evil, don't you? But evil is nothing. It's not a thing at all. So hold on to that. Yeah, good question. All right, where were we? I don't know. Uh, we were talking about this. Let's get into the text. Okay, thank you. Please interrupt me. I, I'm happy to, to have you interrupt me. So we've got this first dialogue that we're going to take a look at. And um, in this dialogue, the student requests a definition of truth from Anselm. He thinks this is going to clear up the issue of a particular creedal statement that he identifies. Whether whatever truth is said to be, quote, on page 119, we must acknowledge that God is that truth. If this is in chapter 1, if you have a different translation. So notice uh, you know, Anselm's mode of operation here. He's going to try to start with this religious or creedal statement. God is truth. Okay? And he cites John 14, 6. And he's going to claim that in order to unpack this particular creedal or religious statement, we need to perform a philosophical analysis first on the nature of truth and language, which will then provide us the tools with which to give meaning to our religious statements. So this is Anselm's sort of unique contribution. Even now it's done all the time, right? But this is his unique contribution in the history of philosophy to think 
at least readily, that we can take these various religious claims, whatever they happen to be, right? What does it mean for God to be incarnate? And set them aside for a moment, do some philosophical analysis, and that will then lead us to be able to make sense of those particular religious truths in a different context. Faith seeking understanding, as we talked about last time, as Father Sean had mentioned. So before moving on, just briefly, the student mentions Anselm's analysis in one of his longest works, the monologion here in the beginning, uh, and the self-refuting statement that truth has a beginning or an end. And this is just a version of a related proposition that the medievals thought was self-refuting, which is to claim that there is no truth. So think carefully about that claim, the claim that there is no truth. What could that possibly mean? On the whole, right, the early medievals from Augustine in the 300s through Bonaventure in the 1200s right, thought that these and other choice statements are absolutely self-refuting. They're falsified by their own content, right? So in this, the reason he brings this up is he wants to be able to lay down the principle that there's truth, first of all, and then it can be discussed coherently, right? We can actually enter into this discussion about what truth is because the very idea that there is no truth or that truth is relative um, is completely incoherent to, to Anselm. Okay? Do we need to discuss that any further? Are we pretty much on the same page there? I mean, just sort of ask yourself, what's the truth value of the following sentence? My proposition is a lie. Right? This statement is a lie. True or false? If you think a little bit about it, it should make your head hurt. Because if it's true, right then it's a lie, which means that it's false. And if it's false, then it's a lie, yes? I mean, then, then it's true. And so we've got these curiosities that Anson wants to say, you know, we can talk this way. And this is going to be important again when we talk about the ontological argument. We can speak words like this, but the issue is whether or not we recognize that they latch on to anything. So the student wants a definition of truth from Anselm. And Anselm proceeds to seek a consistent characterization of truth by telling us to examine the variety of things in which we say that there is truth, page 119. So there are many ways in which we speak of truth, many different things that we refer to that are true, and so we want to analyze them all. And he starts first with the most um, significant one, which is language. In particular, the proposition, the claim, the affirmation, the statement. Right, we have many different ways that we talk about it in logic. Statements or propositions are said to be true or false. But what is the truth of them? Right? In what does the truth of a proposition consist, in other words? Notice it can't be the state of affairs or thing affirmed by the proposition, namely the thing stated by the proposition. Because that's the cause of the propositions being true. We call them the truth makers. For example, it's true that it is Thursday today. Yeah? I didn't miss a day, right? Yeah, it's Thursday. It's been a long week, okay? So, it is Thursday today is true. And why is it true? Well, it's caused to be true by the fact that it's actually Thursday. So far, so good? Notice we don't predicate truth of Thursday itself, right? That thing which is wholly external to the proposition. At least we don't do that directly. It makes no sense to say Thursday is true. 
Oh, sure, yes. So that claim, notice, is variable, isn't it? It's true today. It'll be true seven days from now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sure. Right. Yeah. But again, sort of how we determine that to be true is one thing. How about this? You know, this is a marker. Does that sound better? Right, this is a marker. Sure. And it's actually Thursday, whether we agree that it's Thursday or not. Yeah. It, it, so that claim, it's Thursday, actually takes into account a much more complex set of conditionals, right, which are relational. Yeah. Yeah. But, but if, you want to pref if we want to talk about specific things, maybe that's easier. Yes, this is a marker whether we all believe it's, it's so or not. Yeah, that's fine. I can do that. All right, I'm easy. Huh? Yeah, but what's the definition? It's not just a string of words, right? Because you want to be able to get out of the dictionary, yes? Again, he's not just being a jerk here, right? By saying, like, what is this? What is that? What is this? Yeah? I mean, well, like, think about a definition. Very good. It is a definition. But the question is, what is a definition supposed to do? For Anselm, it's supposed to do something very specific. It's supposed to get at the essence of a thing, right? In particular, it's natural word. Because if you think that a definition of a word is just simply a semantic item, right? These lexical things that we look up in dictionaries, then notice you, you will never leave the dictionary. Have you ever looked up a word and you didn't know what the word, like a technical word, and you didn't know what the words meant, right? So you have to look up more words, right? You can stay in the dictionary all day long, but the hope is that we get out of it. So the hope is that the word, the definitions of a word lead us to come to understand something other than the words themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Right. Maybe. I mean, that's that's an interesting observation, right? I'm I'm sympathetic to it. The question is whether or not, I mean, notice here's what's at stake. Do we understand things in the world or not? Or do we think we're just making noises at each other and just behaviorally responding to the noises that we make? Yeah? And so all language is is just a way of making noises and getting other people to respond the way that you want them to. I mean, that's a theory. Do you understand? It's a position. The issue is, can we, get out, can we get out of the dictionary and understand what wood is? Yes, because you want to be able to uh, avoid problems, right? Like getting it wrong. Yeah, right? I, I don't believe that steel pierces flesh. Right? Right? Yeah? I don't believe that arsenic hurts me. I believe that I can chew glass. I mean, you want to be able to know. Do you understand? It's not just, I want to use the right words in the right context. I want to be able to interact with the things in the world appropriately. 
and that matters. So t- tell me that that doesn't matter, okay? <laughs> that matters, right? However you think about language, yes? It matters that we interact in the world properly, and we're able to somehow recognize that there's a regularity and an order in it. And, and notice, all of this is in the background, right? Do we have the powers for being able to do it? Do we have the, the ability to be able to access reality? One, is reality intelligible? Right? I tried to avoid this discussion earlier, but I guess we're going to have to have it, yes? I mean, it's, it's, it's just, is reality intelligible? The scientists seem to think so. You know? Two, can we tell the difference between appearance, how something appears, versus whether it is real or not? Can we tell the difference? Because presumably, you don't think that just everything you experience is true. Okay? That everything you think is true. That would be nice, yes? Because then you could give yourself the following argument. Whatever I have not lost, I still have. Fair enough? Well, I haven't lost a million dollars. Therefore, I still have it. I wish that one worked. The third, that we have the ability to be able to access reality. Notice, reality can be intelligible. There can be a difference between appearance and reality, but squirrels aren't out there doing physics, are they? They don't have the ability. Penguins, sorry, they're not doing high-level math. They don't understand anything about the nature of reality. Of course, they're in it, right? They can't help but behave in it, but it doesn't mean they understand it. And then the last one, this business about language. Do we, have, do we think that knowledge, whatever that is, yeah, and language help us to mirror reality so that we can not only have the ability to get out and interact with it, right, and get it right, but also communicate it to others? Those are four really important things to us, yeah? And, and at least the early philosophers are all worried about trying to come up with a way of thinking that's going to try to bring all of those together. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. So that's why this is really important to him. You know, it's, it's, it's about, like, you know, at the end of the day, we've got, like, two basic things we want to be able to know. Okay? Um, what is the world and what is God? Maybe a third thing. How are they related? How's that? Because that kind of matters to him too. Right, so if God's real, right, if he's one of those real things, then we should be able to interact with God in some way. Right? And that seems to make a significant difference to us as to whether we can do this or not, whether we can interact with the creator of the universe. And how is that going to go about? And in interacting with the creator of the universe, does that tell us anything about the nature of this world that we're in? and who we are as human beings, and how we should behave, right? So you get all the other theories, right? You get epistemology and metaphysics, you get ethics out of it, right? You get all of these various positions that the philosophers are worried about. How about that? I mean, that's, that's, that's sort of what he's after, yes? I mean, at least he's trying to do some of that piece by piece. And he's, um, he's got a position, right? He's got a position to take concerning how we talk about these things. And so... Propositions, when we talk about linguistic items, when you put certain linguistic items together, you know, you form propositions, claims. So, he explains in the text that there are two ways in which a proposition is said to be true. And this is actually funky. 
Right? We've been talking about funky things all night. But this is actually really cool. He claims that when we think about the nature of language, it has what he calls a twofold mode of being, a twofold mode of truth. It's true in two different kinds of ways. So let's read what he says first on page 122. He says, Therefore, the rectitude and truth that a statement has, because it signifies, in keeping with the purpose for which it was made, is one thing. That which it has, because it signifies what it received the power to signify, is quite another. The latter is invariable for a given statement, whereas the former is variable, since a statement always has the latter, but does not always have the former. For it has the latter naturally, while it has the former accidentally and according to its use. So what's he up to here? And this is what's on your handout. According to Anselm, a statement, a proposition, a claim, okay, which is different from other kinds of uh, constructions of language, by the way. Statements are proper because they have a truth value. There are lots of other utterances that we can make in language that don't have a truth value, like questions. Right? So I can ask, where's the bathroom? And you can't look at me and say, true. Right, that's not helpful, yeah? Right, so, so there are certain, like, you know, interjections. Whoa, you can't say true. You know what I mean? You understand that, like, propositions are the ones that actually try to convey information to give us something to evaluate. Right, so they have a truth value. So a statement has two possible ways in which it can express the truth. The first, what he calls truth of meaning. Truth of meaning is that you've got a well-formed formula, a properly constructed sentence, it has the power to signify, and that power is wholly internal to the statement itself. So this truth is necessary for a proposition to even get off the ground at trying to convey information to us. It is, he says, invariable for a given statement. The primary function of statements is to signify, just as the primary function of a word, by the way, is to signify, though it may or may not do it well or signify what really is the case. But the one that seems to be the most important to us is what we call truth of correctness or truth of signification. That is when a statement actually gets it right, when it signifies correctly, when it says what is is or what is not is not. A statement is right and true if it genuinely refers. This is the kind of truth, again, that we normally speak about when we say that a proposition is true. But notice that this is the kind of truth that is neither wholly external to the claim nor wholly internal to the proposition either. It's something in between. It's, it's our recognition of a correspondence between the utterance and the thing, event, or the state of affairs. That can vary from time to time. And so a proposition has this kind of truth, what he calls contingently. It can change. The upshot is that in order for a proposition to be a proposition, it must always have meaning and the power to signify, but it doesn't always have to signify something. So let me give you some examples, and they're there on your handout. So if C is any combination of words, then here are the following possibilities according for, to someone like Anselm. First, it's possible for C to have A, but not B, that it can have truth of meaning, but not truth of signification. There are leprechauns. You don't want to say that that's meaningless. It's not meaningless, because to say there are leprechauns is very different from saying there are unicorns. And you can say unicorns are not leprechauns, even though both don't exist. 
2. It's possible for C to have A and B. I put today is Thursday, but if you prefer, you can say trees exist. It's possible that C has neither A nor B. And in that case, it would be not a proposition. Okay? Whether it would be a question, like I asked you, or the example I gave you is a, a meaningless string of words or a poorly structured sentence. Box key and the monkey jump slowly green. Right? It doesn't even though each of those individual words might convey something, right? that proposition itself doesn't convey any truth. So notice then it's not possible for this combination of words, a proposition to have B only, to have some truth of reference but have no truth of meaning. How would we be able to recognize that? Similarly, when a combination of words has truth of signification, then it must also have truth of meaning. Okay? So for every proposition which has truth of signification, he says, it's what we call doubly true. It not only, quote, signifies what it received the power to signify, but it also signifies in keeping with the purpose for which it was made. Right? Language is designed to communicate. Right? And it either does it well or not. Yes? And we recognize this and we learn. So if I say, you know, that's a violin. You understand perfectly well what I'm saying, right? So don't say that that's nonsense. But I got it wrong. It's a well-formed formula. It has truth of meaning, but not of signification. Does everyone understand that distinction? And it's important to see that it's got to have both. So consider, right, for every real proposition, you know, you've got to have truth and rectitude. So when we analyze this proposition, for example, there are T-Rexes at the Cleveland Zoo. It applies to one. We know that it does not signify something. So it's used incorrectly at the present time. It can't be true now by signification, but it's a coherent proposition. You can understand what I would mean by it. And indeed, at some time in the past, many people think it did signify something. So it's true in a certain sense, right? It has truth of meaning. Anselm's example that he uses in the text, right? Human beings are animals. That's the example he gives. A human being is not a stone. The example I used last week, Father Sean is not an amphibian. Okay? Yeah. And it's in virtue of this notion of truth or rectitude that Anselm tries to explain everything else and how we talk about truth. And so notice, if you understand the truth of rectitude and the truth of meaning, you should then be able to make sense as to why lies sometimes work. Why do lies convince us? There is some kind of truth in them. Notice when we call Satan the father of lies. What are we saying? Say again. Yes. But because we might not know it, we might be taken in. Notice, Satan can't create anything, yes? Can't create anything new, can't create anything on his own. He can only twist, yes? He can only distort what is true. We'll talk about this later, right, and the fall of the devil. 
He can only twist what's true, and so it's possible for us to be taken in because we're finite creatures. We don't know everything, yes? We don't know whether or not the language that people are giving to us actually gets re makes reference to the world, right? Whether it picks anything out that's true. We could be wrong about it, yeah? People lie to us all the time. But in order for us to have even the possibility of being taken in, it has to have some aspect to the truth. So even in that, Anson would say, how do you hide from the truth? Even in lies, you can't hide from God. So on the basis of this distinction, he then begins to look at other things that we talk about concerning truth. So he mentions a few things. We'll kind of go through them quickly. Um, and as you go through, in, so it's, it's nice our translation has headers on it. Uh, he talks about opinions, okay? And opinions, for Anselm, opinions are just simply mental events, right? They're, they're mental representational states. So an opinion, a belief, right, uh, a thought, those are all the same thing. Notice these are said to be true or false insofar as he says they have rectitude or correctness in this respect. Insofar as you think what is is or what is not is not. A thought is said to be true when what we think is the case really is the case. So your opinion that seven is greater than two is true, even if you never speak it. Right? Here's something that you believe to be true, even though you probably have not thought this. You may have thought this, but probably not in, in the, the history of your life. You know that the number 748,296 is greater than 12. But you believe that. The will, chapter 4, is said to be true. This is curious. Anselm and the student, so he's like, it's a dialogue, you may have noticed, right? And Anselm and the student, they agree further that the will is said to be true with respect to correctness or rectitude. A will, he says, is true when it wills what it ought. And it's false when it wills what it ought not. Notice just as statements have the power to signify in accordance with rectitude, to get it right, and to reveal something, yes? That's what they do. That's how we know. Wills have the power to choose in accordance with what is or what is not and to get it right, to hit the mark. This is why he moves on to say in the next section that actions, actions have truth. Actions or doings are said to be true in the same way that willings are true. An action is true when one does what one ought to do. To do the truth is the same thing as to act well. Since they're contraries, he says, are the same thing. Evil, right? When you don't act well, what does that mean? You're doing evil. When you don't do the truth, you're doing what's wrong. So doing the truth and doing good, he says, have the same signification. They aim at the same thing. So actions are true when they bring about correctness or rectitude. But he does qualify in this chapter now, you may have noticed, right? He says there are two different kinds of actions, and this is where things get interesting. There are what we call rational actions, non-natural, right, in terms of physics, and then there are natural actions. Rational actions are performed by creatures like us, rational creatures, and they're done in accordance with our free will. A person acts well when they freely do what they ought. Natural actions, of course, are the events of nature. They're necessary. Fire acts well, he says, when it does what it ought to do, which is to heat something. But notice it can't help but do what it ought to, given the laws of physics. But they bring about rectitude. 
They reveal to us what is true and ordered about nature. That's why we can tell the difference between fire and water. Because we watch how it behaves. And we recognize that rectitude in it and the regularity of those behaviors. Notice, I mean, how many of you are surprised when you plant seeds and something grows? Maybe because you're like a black thumb, I guess. But Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, like when you plant acorns, what do you expect, all things being equal? Trees, oak trees. You don't expect a Ferrari to grow or a monkey or anything else. Why? That had to be nice, right? I want a Corvette myself. <laughs> the order in nature, right, reveals itself, right? And that's important for us to understand. That's why we can do science, by the way. Rectitude then is found in both rational then and natural actions. Indeed, correctness of action, he says, is a way of signifying in the same way that correctness of speech or utterances signifies something in the world. We do say this, don't we? That actions speak louder than words. So think about it this way. He's elaborating on this in chapter 9, by the way, so I'm just kind of looking ahead. Suppose you're out hiking with a group of individuals and you asked your guide, you know, about the different kinds of mushrooms that you found along the trail. You ask him which ones are poisonous and which ones are edible. And initially, your guide says, the white ones are poisonous, but don't eat the brown ones. So that's what they say to you. But then you get back to camp and you see your guide eating the white ones, presumably on purpose. Which are you more inclined to believe, her word or her deed? I mean, Anselm says that all things being equal, right? I mean, unless she's nuts, right, or she doesn't know herself, right, she's making it up. All things being equal, we should look for the truth in her actions and not in her words. Yes or yes? So Anselm sees this relationship between what makes an action true and what makes statements true. He hooks up the truth of meaning and propositions with the truth or correctness found in actions. Language serves this natural function. Language itself is an action. Here's the, here's the key, right? So we got to the nature of actions. Why? Because language itself is an action. It serves a natural function which is to state the truth. Hence, if someone utters a proposition, it follows that it must le at least be well-formed in order for us to even do anything with it. It must have the power to signify. Otherwise, the language serves no useful fun function at all, right? It's just us making noises. Propositions, he says, by their nature, are fashioned, designed. They have a telos to exhibit the truth of signification and meaning. And they do so correctly when they're spoken about the right thing, in the right context, with the right individuals, etc. Every act, just like every claim and proposition, carries with it a power, a power to convey the truth. Just as a person can improperly employ a proposition and signify nothing about the world, a person can improperly act. They can do what they ought not. And again, keep in mind, if that's true, that propositions have a certain nature that we can ask, through what did they get their nature? Why does language function the way it does? So he's getting there, right? 
The senses now, the senses, he says, can be true or false. And this is one that throws us off, right, particularly with our epistemology, the way that we sort of think about how we know things. In the ancient world, and I put this on your handout, there are two basic lines of thought regarding how we should think about our senses, right? There are the early uh, philosophers who thought that the senses are deceptive, so we should ignore them. But because reality and being is intelligible, we should adhere to reason rather than paying attention to the senses. The senses deceive us, and reason is the only thing that will allow us to get at truth. Right? Because minimally, reason recognizes when there's some sort of a problem, right? Reason can recognize contradiction, for example. Right? So wherever there's contradiction, clearly we want to avoid that. But then the second position is that there really is no error in the senses themselves. Rather, error arises from reason's faulty judgment about the information that they furnish. So notice the two basic options are you don't trust the senses, and if you want to know it's true, you've got to rely on reason alone. And the second observation is the senses are okay. The error happens when we misinterpret what they deliver to us. And Anselm opts for the second option. Okay? He maintains that one should distinguish between what he calls the inner sense and the outer sense. With respect to the outer sense, literally the tools that we use for getting information about the world, right? The five main senses that we have. Those always speak the truth. They just give us what they give us. They simply report what they find. Whether they're well-tuned or not, whether you're wearing your accoutrements or you have your hearing aids in, they give you what they give you, don't they? So they function as they ought. Perceptual error, according to Anselm, arises from the inner sense, the faculty of judgment, as it judges the information communicated to it by the senses and tries to give itself an interpretation. So this is a curious sort of distinction that he makes. The outer senses, he wants to say, are naturally true. Whereas the inner sense is true only when it correctly judges the information from the outer sense and is likened to the truth of actions. And that's really strange when we think carefully about it, right? We don't always make that distinction, although it seems to make sense to us, yeah? I get what I get, and then it's a matter of whether I interpret it properly and apply the right concepts to it in order to be able to make sense of it. So, in the history of philosophy, by the way, just to give you an idea, right, someone like René Descartes takes this idea up, particularly in his fourth meditation. And he'll say strange things like this, right? He just sort of ramps up Anselm's idea. And he says, you know, sort of imagine, you know, so imagine a unicorn. Notice the idea that you have of the unicorn. It's true. You're like, what do you mean? It's true. Is it, do you have the idea of a unicorn? Yes, yes, I do. Well, then it's true that you have an idea of a unicorn. Oh, but, but don't think that it corresponds with something, yes? Truth of rectitude. Don't think that it fits with something outside of your mind, but it's true you have the idea. Similarly, with regard to your feelings. When you're feeling angry, ladies and gentlemen, do you like it when someone tells you you're not really feeling that? Gentlemen, try that with your spouse. Right? Like, when you're feeling angry, you're feeling angry, yes? 
That's just what you're feeling. When you're feeling frustrated or when you're feeling proud, whatever, you're, you're feeling those things. Now, it's another question altogether whether those, those feelings are justified, yeah? But if you're feeling them, you're feeling them. They're true about you. So those feelings reveal truth. And yet, of course, there's another question we should ask. And this is the question that Anselm asks here because he's got this dual understanding of truth, which allows us to be able to maneuver, yes? And trying to make sense of what we perceive versus how we interpret it. So this is really key. I mean, he offers us this really cool theory. And just, I think it's cool because contemporary philosophy has gotten away with it. Right? They've thrown it out. Right? Because truth is only about claims, and that's it. Essences. He says essences are said to be true or false. The essence of a thing, sort of the conditions under which a thing is what it is, that's the essence of it, sort of the defining characteristics of what makes a thing what it is. Everything which exists, according to Anselm, is in accordance with the plan of the divine mind, what he calls the highest truth. Everything which exists truly is, and it is what it should be. It's as God made it. Nothing exists, he claims, which is not in the highest truth or has not received what it is from the highest truth. So when Anselm speaks of the truth of essences, truths of natures, he has in mind the correspondence between the divine mind, the exemplars in the divine mind, and objects in the world. It follows, notice, that what exists falsely really doesn't exist at all. There is no correspondence between a thing in a world and an archetype in the mind of God, right, that gets it wrong. If it were, it wouldn't be a thing. So in a sense, everything that exists, exists rightly or correctly, according to Anselm. But... There's a problem that he realizes he needs to, to clarify. And it comes up in chapter 8. He says, look, if all things are what they ought to be, if all things that exist rightly are, then what are we to say about the existence of evil? He's got a lot more to say about it later on. But as a brief response, he says, look, let's provide a distinction here before we can say much more about this. When we talk about the terms ought and the terms ought not, they're sometimes used ambiguously. They're not used in what we call an equivocal or in a univocal sense, right? They're used in two different ways. It's possible that an action that you consider both ought to happen and ought not to happen in two different respects. The example that he gives is an interesting one. Anselm claims that with respect to the wills of human beings, for example, Jesus ought not to have been killed. No person on the planet had the authority to will justly that Jesus ought to be killed. But with respect to the will of God, Jesus ought to have been put to death, he says. For Jesus' death was the vehicle through which God willed the salvation of humans. And of course, he's going to talk about that later in Credeus Homo. So notice, nothing exists except through God's causing or permitting it. God does not unwisely cause or permit anything to exist, Anselm believes. Whatever God causes or permits to exist ought to exist. Same goes, presumably, for certain acts of evil. The effect of an evil will, an evil deed, ought not to exist on the order of morality. Humans ought not do them, even though God permits them. He permits some people to do evil deeds. 
But insofar as they're conceived by evil wills, they ought not be done. It's a very curious observation. So there's a sense in which no one can do that which they ought not do. For the very fact that it was permitted by God at all indicates that it ought to have occurred. Nothing gets by God, right? It's not as if it was an accident, yes? That's the thing we have to wrestle with. But it ought not happen by demand or by moral obligation or by the will of free creatures. But some actions in the same breath are morally wrong. They ought not to have been done. We should have known better. They were done out of an evil will. God allows evil, even though human beings ought not do it. How else do you reconcile this, right? It becomes curious, yeah? The explications of the problem of evil. So given the analysis of the many things in which truth is said to exist, the highest truth, which is God, God is not just truth, but rectitude, with a capital R. The highest truth or rectitude is not rectitude because it has any obligations in action, however, or because it participates in rectitude the way that individual things do. But in fact, God is what we call the cause of all truth and rectitude, just as God is the cause of all things that exist. For just as God makes it the case that there are things, and hence there is truth in things, and God preserves their essences, so too the truth of things is the cause of the truth in knowledge, which is the correspondence between your beliefs and the way that the world is, and the truth of signification and propositions, which is the correspondence between the noises you make and the way that the world is. The truth or rectitude in each case, he says, can be traced back to the divine rectitude as the being that supports that correspondence and makes it the case that that correspondence can obtain at all. This rectitude is preserved in the faculties of certain kinds of beings, like rational creatures, us, so we can ascertain, will, and speak in accordance with it. And this is why Anselm claims that, well, God is truth. So in each individual case of rectitude, all the individual ones we looked at, each individual case is understood by means of reason, for it's not seen specifically in the thing or in the event or in the utterance itself. It pertains to that correspondence that rational creatures perceive between or among different things, and it is thus established and preserved by the divine being. This is why truth is the rectitude, he says, that is perceptible by the mind alone. Similarly, justice, he says, turns out to be a subclass of rectitude of truth, right, which pertains only to rational creatures. Justice is rectitude of the will for its own sake. Right? It's a way of willing. So all justice is rectitude, but not all rectitude is justice. Right? Otherwise, we'd have to call stones just because they do what they ought to when they, laws, they follow the laws of physics. Okay? So, one last thing that Anselm mentions here to round things out. Any questions before we go on? I'm sure that that was, you know, obviously opaque. Yes? So Anselm gives us one more thing to look at here at the end of the text. He considers a strange problem, and I know it's a strange problem, but we want to try to make sense of it, okay? He wonders whether the rectitude of signification in a statement is different from the rectitude of the will. Now, why would he wonder this, right? 
If it is, then it appears that the existence of these two different kinds of rectitudes, rectitude of signification, rectitude of the will, would depend upon things of which they're said, namely the significations and the wills. Let me give you an example. Consider the color of the cushions that you're sitting on right now. Okay? They're red. Notice just as the color of the seats that you're sitting on is dependent upon the material structure of the cloth and the seat. Okay? Uh, that is, if you have a material body, it's going to have a particular color or other, right? Then notice, if you destroy the material body, you destroy its color, right? So if we burn up all the pews, the color is gone, okay? He's wondering, is, is signification like that? Suppose you destroy the thing that a proposition is supposed to make reference to. You remove the signification. Do you eliminate its rectitude? That's what he's wondering. So Anselm's response is that rectitude belongs to the signification in a different way from the colors belonging to a material object. All right. So let me give you a weird example. Maybe the example will help you understand what's going on. So does everyone get the example about the color? If I burn up the pews, right, the color is dependent upon the material object, right? If I burn that up, I destroy the color as well, yes? So we understand that the color of a material object is dependent upon the material object presenting itself a certain way. He's wondering if rectitude is like this, so that if I destroy the signification of something, all of a sudden my propositions become meaningless. Okay? So let me give you another weird example. Take a sign, like a railroad crossing sign. Every one of you have seen one of those, yes? Suppose that it's placed in a particular location, namely where there are railroad tracks. Notice the sign signifies. To signify something is to, to be a sign of, right? It's actually redundant. It points to something. That's what signs do. They give you information. Yeah. So you get rectitude in the way that Anselm is talking about. Now suppose one night a group of my philosophy students, after a binge fest at uh, BW's, Right, decides to employ a craftsman ratchet set to decorate their dorm room with some city property, including that particular railroad crossing sign. I know that's never happened, but you know, there it is. They take the sign and they hang it on their dorm room wall. Notice the sign no longer signifies in Anselm's sense. There, there are no railroad tracks in their dorm room, right? But the sign, Anselm wants to say, still has a kind of rectitude, doesn't it? Why? You know why. So you walk into your son or daughter's dorm room and you see the railroad crossing sign hanging up by their bathroom. What can you say? Yeah, where did you get that sign? Yeah? Why can you say that? You know what it is, do you understand? You know what it has the power to do if it were put back where it belongs. Yeah? The, st the sign still has rectitude according to Anselm. It's able to signify what it ought. It still has the power to refer in the sense of be. 
So notice he says this. Here's the, fun, here's the way he puts it. The correctness or rectitude still puts a demand on the sign even when it's not being used as it ought. Otherwise, you wouldn't know what it was. But you can walk into the room and know exactly what it is and know that it doesn't belong there. So when the sign does signify as it ought to signify, when it's put back in its proper place, it does so in accordance with this rectitude. And it has to have that power prior to its being put in any particular place. So the rectitude that it has is independent of both the sign and the railroad track. So he says rectitude then, correctness, is present in a proposition, in a claim, right? Because that signification accords with a rectitude that's independent of the noise and the thing or event it signifies. That rectitude never perishes. You know why? Because the cause of the rectitude never perishes. Properly speaking then, you have this on your handout, I think, truth is not in a proposition. A proposition is in truth. Remember the light example I gave you? The mediating principle between the seer and the seen? Right? It also serves the function of the relationship between the knower and the known. We speak improperly when we speak of the individual truth of this or that thing. Truth or rectitude, God as truth, has its own being. Right? And things reveal themselves as they are in accordance with it. And so Anselm wants to say that when we think about reality, again, this is his position. We can fuss with him, right? We might want to disagree with him, but he's of the opinion then that when we get at the truth, we are tapping in, right, not just to being, right, but to, 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 to God's understanding of things. Right? When you get the essence of something, you just sort of get an incomplete aspect of the natural word, the natural word which was uttered by whom? God, from the moment of creation, by the Word, yeah, that makes all things. So this understanding, I mean, he's, he's using this to try to sort of account for all of these relations that we are familiar with. Yeah? Yeah, it's a theory. Yes, sir. What, what do you mean now? I'm sorry. I just I want to make sure I understand your question. I apologize. So, so we got like the redness in the in the pew. He wants to say that the dependency of a color, for example, on the material structure of an object is very different from quote unquote the dependency of rectitude on on uh, the the utterance. Right. In fact, the rectitude is prior to the utterance, but the color is not prior to the material structure. Does that make sense? Color is what we call an emergent property, which obtains when you put material together in a certain kind of way and it reflects white light in a particular pattern, right? In fact, I mean, you know, the, the seat, if the physicists are correct about this, the, the, the seat is every color but red. Red is the color that is not being absorbed by the object. Right, so it's, it, that's what's bouncing off of it right now. Yeah. So he wants to. So 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 let's just 
the basic thing is that whatever truth is, truth is eternal. Truth is foundational. And, and God has created rational creatures to be able to tap into that in a, variety, a wide variety of ways with our language, with our thoughts, with our wills, right? With our actions, right? And then in, in our ability to be able to see it in the things of our experience. Yeah. Did I answer your question? Did it help a little bit or no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to think about it too. You guys are putting me on the spot here. We're getting to that time. Well, I want to thank you for being here. I hope this was helpful, if not just completely, just sort of mind-boggling. Okay, um, this is hard stuff. I've done what I can to try to at least get us to see what's going on in that particular text. And what we will do next time is take a look at a variety of things. We're going we're to talk a little bit about, is it God and evil? Is that what we have on our next, our next topic? And so, right, so we're going to take a look at Anselm and his understanding of God as the being in which none greater can be conceived. And we've talked briefly about this relationship, yes, to sort of to have an idea of something in the mind, to have an understanding of it. And Anselm says the following, and you all feel this. You know exactly what he's saying when he says, you know, the fool hath said in his heart there is no God. That's his creedal statement. But how can that be? How can the fool say in his heart that there is no God? Because even the fool, he says, understands what I'm talking about. He knows, like when I say there is a God, he knows what I mean. He just doesn't think there is one, yes? So even the fool understands what it is when I claim that there is a God and he claims that there isn't, right? In fact, you can't make a denial, notice, without understanding what it is that you're denying. But then if the fool does that, he's in trouble. Given what we just studied concerning what a concept is and what it reveals. And then once we understand the divine being, then how do we make sense again? We're going to go back to this concept of evil, right? And on the fall of the devil, right? Because if you think that human beings are hard to make sense of, right? Like we screw up because we're stupid. And that's why we're just, we're, we're finite and we're stupid. But if you were in the presence of God, why would you turn from him? That just seems unfathomable, yes? Why would you? Look, they're there. They were in God's presence. Why would they turn from him? You explain that, Anselm says. Human beings are easy. <laughs> so, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I just want to add, from a devotional side, um, think about this, and, and last time we had Dr. Mancha up here, we were talking about the seven deadly sins during a, a Lenten series as well, which a number of years ago. Um, but think about this when in our confession we confess sins of thought, word, and deed. This should all be coming back to you, but hopefully what, what we've talked about tonight gives that a little bit more flesh, right? And what we mean when we say, most merciful God, I confess to you and to the whole company of heaven that I've sinned against, in you, against you in thought, word, and deed. Right? There, are, there are intellectual sins that we commit uh, as well as 
um, sins of word and sins of deed. And they, they all warp us, right? So, so why do we have to confess so much? Because we're, we're constantly trying to be unwarped, right? Get rid of that. We want rectitude. Yeah. And, and it's all tied together. It's not like sins of thought somehow don't affect sins of word or deed, right? So that's, that's partly what goes on in the human, the, the anatomy of the soul, the heart. Um, let's pray, and then we'll go forth. O Heavenly Father, in whom we live and move and have our being, we humbly pray Thee so to guide and govern us by Thy Holy Spirit, that in all the cares and occupations of our life we may not forget Thee, but, but, but may remember that we are ever walking in Thy sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And may you go forth blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.